Okay. Episode three of the As Yet to Be Named podcast, Devin Bendel and Nathan Lubehusen. Um, we wanted to pick up kind of where we left off from episode two. Uh, got a little distracted with um, some of the adoption complications of Bitcoin, and um, we wanted to be a little more clear this episode on uh, what some of the fundamentals of money are and what are some of the fundamental assumptions that people have to overcome or hear 50 or 100 times in order to open their mind up a little bit to alternatives to currency. And so uh, the, this episode won't be super structured uh, just because we're not, we don't need to be held to that standard yet, but did want to strip back to some of the first principles and fundamentals of what is a money and correspondingly, what do you think, what are things people have to hear over and over and over again, or um, things that people think are totally locked in about current money that they have to unlock or, or question in order yeah. for everybody to move forward. Um, there's a lot of great quotes from Robert Breedlove, who's going to be my predominant guiding voice um, in this podcast. And he forms so much of my basis of individualism and decentralization and the fundamentals of money. And he does it from this like pretty cool apolitical place. Like he doesn't, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I could probably put together how he politically identifies, but he's not coming from an agenda of join this party, vote for this person, vote for this person. So I think he's a really easy voice to listen to because he's not going to attack or demonize um, certain political areas. So um, that's why I respect him so much is that I love that you can ha- hold these opinions that it doesn't have to be this tribal politically based um, opinion that you form. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't have to get politicized or sticking to or moving away from the US dollar doesn't have to be politicized. So yeah, it almost is some of those fundamentals. It's almost necessary that it uh, it doesn't. I mean, like that's the, yeah, uh, you know, the the whole idea of Bitcoin is that it'll allow us, hopefully allow us an opportunity um, to avoid the chaos that comes with the political politicization of um, the right and the left, right versus left and, and the problems that that causes, I mean, kind of give us a common ground, uh, maybe that we can have an open dialogue about uh, as a community um, and as, as far as um, that reaches. And, and I think Robert does such a good job of that. He's he's a genius when the way he speaks um, and not he's very careful with his words about how he doesn't he doesn't seem to bring in um like you said either one of the sides of of the political sphere um and instead he he kind of comes from the approach of of what he believes um but he also listens uh on the podcast where he's with other people um but he's done a lot of research you can tell he understands money very very well um and and so his arguments don't come from this place of naivety um it's it's well researched well studied um, so I've been learning quite a bit, um, but I'd love to hear um, what your first ideas are about um, just things that we need to break down um, that are naturally just held, uh, you know, through the through the majority of the community, uh, at least here in America, um, and and why why we have those thoughts and beliefs, um, and just kind of what your opinions are on that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of directions to go into there. I think. 
one of the reasons it's so hard to change people's minds about money or to get them to think less dogmatically about money is because mm-hmm. it's so pervasive. We, um, it's, it's the foundation of the economy. We get paid in it. We transact in it. We think in it in terms of quantity or value um, in terms of the U S dollar and something so fundamental, the more fundamental belief is like, I don't know, does, does God exist or is the earth flat? Like all those gravity, all those fundamental beliefs that kind of affect everything else will inherently take people more time to question and change their minds about. And so I think that speaks to the importance of money. So wherever you end up pro USD, pro Bitcoin, pro Ethereum, whatever it is, because it has taken so much effort and thought to form your opinion and it goes to show how important it is to get it right. Yeah. If this is some trivial thing, you could kind of dismiss it as not really a big deal. And I think we have to be careful to not be afraid uh, to question. Uh, Like, I think uh, it goes back to, to some of the stuff we talked about in the last episode of the fear that comes along with breaking down this whole system of money um, and like what, what people don't want to question it because it, it is so important and, and so vital to their daily lives and they've never known anything differently. Um, but if there is a better option out there, I think everybody would agree that, that we should take the better option. Um, and so it's worth asking the question, is there a better option? Without without a doubt, it's always worth asking the question, is there a better option? And based off just the short amount of time that I've listened to Robert, it, it seems like he has at least a good enough case to say we should ask the question. Um, uh, and, uh, and the stability that Bitcoin brings. Um, so I'd love for you to, because you have a better understanding of this than I do, just kind of describe what you think about the normal fiat currency and um, a couple of assumptions that people make that aren't necessarily um, true or um, at least could be worth questioning. Yeah, it's hard to... Uh, I'm not an expert in any of these things, so that this is a combination of uh, research I've done on my own and I don't know, dozens or hundreds of podcast episodes at this point. So the, the quick overview of, I don't know, the fiat currency or the, the dominating currency that we have today in the United States dollar is uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, the 19 teens, the Federal Reserve was formed and essentially the, the money that the government issued used to be redeemable for gold and silver or gold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, silver is just you know, a different commodity that was traded at a certain ratio of gold. And those f- prices have fluctuated up and down over time. Um, but you used to be able to turn in your U S dollars at any bank or anywhere. This is redeemable for gold and um, paper money has been used since, I don't know, uh, for over a thousand years in China, I think is probably where it originated. Um, but it, it's an easier substitution for lugging gold around. Um, uh, it's lighter, it stacks, it, and it can be just as verifiable as gold, if not more verifiable. 
um, because it is backed by this trusted institution, which is the US government in this case. Um, but in the 19 teens, um, for reasons that are beyond the scope of this podcast, we decided to get off of a true gold standard. And so from the 19 teens to 1971, I believe, um, the US dollar was only partially backed by gold. Um, you couldn't redeem your dollars for gold anymore. It became illegal in the early 1930s for individuals to privately possess just gold. Uh, and, and so you, government, the, issue, the issuer, the US government, increased its power over the 20th century um, and became, it became more and more fiat currency. And fiat just means by declaration or by decree. And so by fiat, the US government says this, this money is now the money that is trusted. It is no longer gold. And because the US government had so much power and continues to grow in power, it's the most powerful institution in human history. Uh, even though it's not backed by a currency that has really good properties of money, which we can go into, um, they're, the properties of money have been substituted by just sheer power and willpower wow. and influence and empire and all those things. And so the dollar is held, held up reasonably well because it had so much power behind it that it was just easier for people to believe in a common lie or, or believe in the U.S. dollar's utility, even if it's not backed by anything, instead of going against the grain or questioning yeah. the fundamentals of money. Um, and so that became the dominant currency. And like that, Robert will argue over time that fiat currencies have survived less time than you know hard hard money, whatever that hard money was at the time. Um, but they they fiat currencies limped along because of the government's power behind them. And off uh, since 1971, the U.S. went off the gold standard completely. Um, and it used to print all of it, actually print all of its money. Uh, and now it doesn't even do that. A very small fraction of the money actually gets printed. And then now it's just changing numbers in a database. Um, so we're getting further and further from gold, which we can talk about the fundamentals of money. Yeah. What throughout human history, at least in the last few thousand years, has been the best fundamental money for a lot of different reasons. And so... Uh, Robert's thesis, and I tend to agree, is that uh, this problem of the U.S. dollar being the dominating currency in the world, but being so far from being an ideal currency, is the fundamental problem in our economies, in, uh, in um, individual freedom, property mm -hmm. rights, empire. It, it's just it's at the root of all of these problems. And so that we should do everything we can to analyze the basics of money decide we don't even have to collectively decide we need we just need a freer market for money and people will gravitate towards the hardest money in his theory we just got to be a little bit we just got to lift our heads up out of the sand a little bit and question what makes a good money what's a good money that i want what uh monies are on a trajectory towards failure and which ones are likely going to stick around for a long time and he argues bitcoin's the answer there yeah and uh to add to that, uh, one of the craziest thing, uh, one of the questions that he rose um, that that really blew my mind, and I think should be repeated here. Um, he questioned, "What is the difference between counterfeit money and inflation?" Uh, and 
And when you really think about that, when you really break it down, there's no real difference. So if I go and I buy off of the black market or the dark web and I buy a bunch of counterfeit cash um, and I add it into the system, right, that that is technically going to devalue the overall um, goods and services um, because there's more money, same amount of goods and services. So everything is in turn going to be worth half. You're going to have to pay more to get it. Uh, inflation, the exact same thing, except for it's a legal entity. And we have accepted this truth that it is okay for this natural inflation to exist. But why? What is the basis beyond why people think that? Why Why do people think that it is that there should be an infla- inflation period or a deflation period? Why, why wouldn't there just be a, a strong number uh, of how much money there is and that exists um, based off of gold and then allow the different differenti- differentiation to be in based off how much goods and services we all communally do. Um, and I think that's what Robert's really getting at is if you have a strong number, if you have a a, def- a defined number, which Bitcoin allows, you can't have any more than, what is it, 21 million Bitcoin, um, then everything... It, there's nobody stealing any money by utilizing rules and manipulation. Instead, they they have, there's no possible way to do that because they can't control the system that you're around. Uh, and um, I think people have just been told their entire lives, and I thought it the same thing, um, that it, it's okay for a little bit of inflation to exist. It's okay for five, four or five percent of inflation to exist. And you look at that, and it means that your money is worth four or five percent less every year. Why is that an okay thing with us? Why are we doing the exact same amount of work, but we're losing four percent, four or five percent of value? At some point, we're becoming slaves to the system. Like we're working, we're working just to to keep the system moving faster and faster and faster for the people that sit at the top to not have to do anything. Um, but it's not creating the beautiful empires of the past. Um, because I think somewhere caught subconsciously, and he mentions this too, is that people know that the money doesn't have any true withstanding value. And so they don't spend, they don't, they, and they know they're losing it over time. And so they, they don't spend time making these megalithic structures, these beautiful works of art. Uh, and that's how he kind of gets into the community aspect of it. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know. It just, it, it really opened up my mind uh, and and something I wanted you to go into a little more because it, it, it is hard for me to understand. Um, but I, to me, it just opened up my mind to this whole new idea of the difference between the government being able to steal our money and someone printing counterfeit dollars. And why do we not look at those as the same thing? And why are people not upset about that, that going on um, with the federal reserve literally getting to control what our money is valued at and how it's valued. Um, and then uh, I'll, I'll leave it with this last question. Um, why, if we are getting more efficient and working harder, it, is are we still having to work 40 hour weeks to be able to do the exact same amount of things in the world? Uh, and and that that should really um, be trivial for people to think about because we should be getting more efficient. We should be able to work either work less to be able to live the exact same life or we should all be getting 
vastly better lives. Um, and I would say we, our lives are getting better, but are they getting better at the same rate as they are for the entirety of the community or are certain people getting to take advantage of that system and their lives are becoming really great and the rest of us are staying pretty stagnant. Um, and, and I think the common thought from either sides on the right and the left is that most people are staying pretty stagnant at the bottom and few people are gaining a lot of power. Um, and I, and I, I don't think the full tin hat that idea, but I do think that, uh, there is, uh, there is some truth to the government utilizing manipulation, uh, in order to, to steal money essentially, or steal power, um, in a way. Yeah, this, so this is a huge topic. This might be the fundamental, this touches everything that we wanted to touch on. So, um, not only is inflation and a core assumption that people are going to have to hear a bunch and overcome to question the money, but this is also a fundamental of what makes good money. Um, this also it touches the fundamentals of like, what is the role of government and what is the role of government in people's lives in terms of things that they're allowed to do and we're not allowed to do. And so, yeah, I, for my entire life, um, we've been taught that, uh, oh, and a certain amount of inflation is just a product, a natural byproduct of economic growth. GDP goes up, wages go up and in, uh, inflation goes up and the, the amount of dollars in circulation goes up. What's wrong with that? It all just it grows <laughs> together. And so I, I, and I don't think anybody really stops to question that financial topics get complicated enough, either through propaganda, like a lot of financial planning in the stock market is made intentionally complicated so that the people that do know how it works, maintain a false sense of expertise and false level of expertise. Um, it's so that the average person kind of taps out and outsources that expertise to um, the financial planner. Um, I still think they serve some role, obviously, and finances do get really complicated, but if it was made simpler in a lot of easy ways, uh, there was, there would be some obsolescence there for financial planners and people that know the financial markets really well. I think that same problem is happening with, uh, monetary supply. Like, I think they, they, made this, this super complicated system of fractional reserve banking um, and monetary policy, expansionary and contraction monetary policy to make it deceptively complicated so that people just say, oh, there must be a bunch of people in a room smarter than me making these decisions. And who am I to question whether inflation is natural or not? So I'm just going to kind of assume the Keynesian assumptions that they tell me. Um, and that's how that they steal anywhere from zero to, I don't know what, nine, nine plus percent. It was the official reported inflation last year, but it was a lot higher if you ask some nonpartisan people. Um, yeah. And another way people are able to shoo away inflation is that, oh, wages are going up just like the, the price of milk is going up. Uh, so if I get a cost of living raise and the milk goes up, like, you know, that, that's natural and it all balances out, but that's not true. Uh, it's, it's not at all true. I, I, if it was more at first off, did everybody get the 9% raise, right? Did every, did it obviously like not everyone got the 9% raise. Um, and maybe certain people got higher than that, but, but on average, I, I would say that the world, I would say that the world's 
I mean, we should probably look this up before we make a blanket statements, but I would I would presume that we did not gain 9% on average over what we gained last year in average income for each person in the United States or each person in the world. And and we don't get to see as much of it as in the United States as even other countries do. Like that that's the biggest thing is like in the United States we are at the top top of the pyramid and so we're kind of at least for the fiat currencies you know and uh great britain as well also does really well but um we we don't get to see a lot of the damage that is caused yet but at the bottom of the pyramid these there are countries that are getting demolished by this concept already that are getting destroyed by this concept already and are losing losing faith in their money already and, and to me, that's scary because if if they start to lose faith in their money and they start to lose faith in our money, do they still provide us the services that we need from them? And then does that allow the entire system to break down? Uh, and that in itself should be scary enough for us to consider having a finite uh, money system. Because if we have a finite money system, then people have the assurance that the money is going to have the value that it has. But they can't possibly have that assurance because it doesn't exist. They they don't have the money that they have, and they don't have any control over how much money they are going to have in the future. It, it's going to be controlled by, right now, the government, the Federal Reserve, and, and in other countries, they have their own system, systematic approaches. But why why is everybody i understand why you, the united states loves this concept so much but why do other countries adopt this like yes we're just going to follow along with what you guys are doing um even in the countries that are providing a lot of services for very very little amount of money like that 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 eventually that's going to come together for them and they're going to be very upset at the people that have been taking advantage of them and that should also scare you as an, if you're an American, like if I'm, you know, 10,000 people in Thailand figure out that they've been working these factory jobs for a dollar an hour and living in poverty, in abject poverty. And then they figure out that in America, we're, even if you're a factory worker, you're making, you know, $20 an hour. Like what idea do you think that they're going to have about us? And then like, where where do you think they're going to how do you think they're going to feel um and eventually will it cause a revolt like to to me like those are all things that i think of uh when i think of the problems that this this holds is yes it, it does give american advantage at some point but at some point people will wake up to the fact that they're getting bamboozled and they will be very angry about it and i think that that wouldn't happen if we had a finite uh, amount of money because then it could be equal around the world uh, and we we could start to have some equity around the world and i think that that would happen at, at a very fast rate whereas now it is it is a very slow rate um and, and purposely kept slower um and, and and i think that that causes a lot of problems in and of itself yeah yeah you're right man uh, and uh i think what you're describing here a lot of it gets boiled down to one word and this is what Robert Breedlove describes as the cancel-on effect, um, which is essentially it, the closer you are to the money printing, the bigger advantage you have to that money printing, um, because you just you get access to it first. You get to decide what to do with it first, and then 
you get to you get to leverage it to your own uses and then pass it on down the chain or down the pyramid. And so I think that's an inherent problem with centralized money is that the people that have the authority to preserve the current rules or the status quo or centralized money are also the ones that benefit from it the most. And the people that benefit from it the least, the Thailand, the workers in Thailand, uh, are furthest down that Cantillon pyramid and benefit from it the least, but they're also the furthest ones away from being able to do something about it. And mm-hmm. so even in like, I don't know, African countries, like they're corrupt government bureaucrats and their corrupt private contractors are way closer to the U.S. financial system and all of the downstream financialization than the average citizen there. But if they're the ones, if like in Sierra Leone, some random country, if all of their politicians and all their high level, like private contractors and um, uh, corrupt corporations or whatever, they would rather play along with the U.S. dollar system because they're better off than if the country tried to split off and like make its own currency yeah. uh, at the detriment of all the people under them. And so that's, what's so beautiful about Bitcoin is that it's completely decentralized. Yeah. And it, well, that, and that fact that you, that you stated there, they, they play along for now. Um, one, because we're very powerful, but over time, there's going to be a point where we're already almost to that point where like, you know, nukes and stuff, that people can develop nuclear weapons. And I think that's why we keep such an eye on, on nuclear weapons. But at the time when every country can develop a nuclear weapon, give a hundred years, give it 200 years, whatever that time frame is, then America is no longer have no longer has a power advantage because everyone has the ability to wipe out everyone. And when that when that happens and we don't have a power advantage, people are no longer going to allow leaders of other countries are no no longer going to allow themselves to be disadvantaged just because they want us just because we say they are going to be disadvantaged. We know this happens in real life situations. Like, you know, there's bullies that bully kids um, in a school. And, and as long as that kid believes that that bully is more powerful than him, then they, a lot of times it continues to happen to them. But when that, little kid stands up to the bully or shows his power or grabs a group of friends um, and they all, you know, say something that the bully shuts down. Um, the same thing will come to the United States. Eventually they will develop enough power to where they have the power to stand up to the person that's bullied them. And I don't think that they're going to be very happy about it. I think that Bitcoin is the only answer if we don't want the world system to collapse. Like it, it just alleviates a lot of the um, the conflict that already exists because most of the wars, most of that conflict, uh, it seems to me, comes from money or access to money um, and really power. But money is right now the avenue to power. Um, and I, I just think, I wonder what, you, I'd actually rather ask you because I, I don't want to make an assumption, um, but I wonder what you think about if Bitcoin was adopted um, by other countries, do you think the United States would allow this to happen? Um, and then, uh, or do you think that they would have some pushback against it? Um, and then should should that then allow us to question it? I mean, we've made up excuses to invade countries in the past, but I, I don't, I really don't see how um uh, persistent but gradual adoption of Bitcoin for countries 
is anything that we could intervene in, like invade a country for? Uh, it just, it seems like too peaceful or too, uh, too much of an opt-out situation for the U.S. military to justify invading, but I, so I don't see that coming. Um, and you say as, a, as other countries build nuclear weapons or like it gets easier for them to defend themselves or the U.S. empire just loses credibility like it has over the last few decades, I think adopting Bitcoin is a much more peaceful and practical alternative for these other countries than yeah. there is creating their own fiat currency or something. So I think it, it's such, it's a path of least resistance too. If, if uh, those governments and the people high up in other countries' governments decide that they don't like the US dollar, it's so much easier to go to Bitcoin than it is try to create your own new fiat currency because that's where you're gonna get some pushback from the, yeah. from the United States. Um, and it's so much easier than creating like a central bank digital currency because that's essentially a fiat currency. This Bitcoin is such a nice opt-out and the infrastructure is already built and there's a network effect. As soon as more countries decide to take on Bitcoin or accept it as legal tender or put some of their the country's treasury invested in Bitcoin, um, this all builds on itself. And, yeah. and so I know a lot of your fears are from like this implosion of the, the U.S. dollar. And yes. I, I think that's maybe possible. But just like changing people's minds on liberty or um, accepting different monies, one small step at a time, oh, I think Bitcoin adoption might be one small step at a time. Bitcoin's one step up, U.S. dollars one step down. And then we don't really notice when they're even or one surpasses the other. There will be different measurements that show the flipping between U.S. dollar and, and Bitcoin. But I think and hope that it's gradual enough that it's peaceful. I mean, because there's nobody to attack with Bitcoin. You have to attack each individual holder. I just question why did it drop so much when it seemed it in theory it's so stable. So like it, it's such a stable commodity. Um and, and in times of of great economic distress, people always go back to the state most stable items like gold, silver. People invest in the or at least smart investors invest in gold, silver, stable coins. Um and and Bitcoin seems to be the digital version of that. But when the stock market started to crash, we also saw an alignment of Bitcoin crash. And to me, it it was propaganda against Bitcoin that caused that. Um, and so it's like the, there's already a, a war going on, but I can see Bitcoin winning because they don't have anybody to point at. Like the, they, they can try to fight it all they want, um, but maybe hopefully the truth will prevail um, because it is such a, a stable concept and, and obviously something that would work better for everyone um, in my mind. But I, I just don't think that America is going to go down without a fight. And that's the fear that I have um, is they're not going to relinquish all their power for uh, without without fighting it. I mean, I think we saw it uh, in this the last year or two. And um, you see articles every day coming about about how. They use the other non-stable coins as reasons for why Bitcoin is a bad coin. Um, they would say, like, look at all of these things that happened over here um, with all of these non-stable coins um, and how people lost all of their money 
And then that scares enough people away from utilizing Bitcoin, yeah. which doesn't necessarily hold those same components. Um, so that's why I do think the education of this is so important, uh, is educating people on what is Bitcoin and what why it is better than those unstable coins. Um, and so I'd love, again, I don't know enough about this as much as you do, um, but I'd love for you to get into what Bitcoin is at its basis um, and then what makes it different than the non-stable coins. Yeah, I think the uh, any downturn in Bitcoin, you know, since this last bear market slash unlabeled recession um, is a correlation problem. Um, a lot of institutional money came into Bitcoin in the last few years. And when uh, their valuations go down, they either pull out or reduce their Bitcoin investments. And so I haven't had, I haven't seen a single example of somebody pointing to Bitcoin itself and saying it should it is fundamentally worth less because of this specific thing. It's not like oh it got way harder to mine Bitcoin or their uh, the um, the Lightning Network downtime increased by tenfold during this period. You know, there's not a real infrastructural reason why Bitcoin should be worth any less. I think it's just general. It's economic sentiment and false correlations like what with you brought up. People think cryptocurrency, people that don't know much about it, including me when I didn't know much about it, like all cryptocurrencies are the same. There's just different kind, you know, different names on them. Um, and so th there's ignorance there. There's panic selling. There's uh, all kinds of different things that would lead to the downturn in the value of Bitcoin. So I'm not really worried about that. Or people say if it goes below 10,000, it's it's dead forever. I'm like, yeah, why though? Yeah. And, well, um, I think that that's the propaganda again. Uh, so can can you explain the difference between a stable coin um, and uh, the the stability of Bitcoin and the um, other coins on the market for those that don't understand? Like me, I don't fully understand. Um, yeah, so and that'd be super helpful. It, it's tough to summarize. There's, I mean, there's podcasts and podcasts worth of yeah. knowledge here just in general, but um, the Bitcoin white paper was written in 2008, 2009 by Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi Nakamoto, um, an unknown entity. It could be a group of people. It could be one person, guy, girl from Japan, not from Japan. We don't know. Um, but the Bitcoin white paper was written then. Um, and Bitcoin mining started sometime shortly after that. Um, and so Bitcoin is uh, in a short version, like digital gold. So there are only 21 million Bitcoin that can ever be mined, printed in circulation, whatever. And the, the ledger of who owns how many Bitcoin on an individual basis or across the whole world is built upon a blockchain. And a blockchain is just a decentralized ledger of who owns what. And so what Bitcoin mining is, is using computing power to run open source software that all it does is solve cryptographic puzzles, what's called proof of work. And all that's doing is uh, you're putting your computer to work to solve really complicated math problems, all to the end of double checking the, the blockchain and verifying it. So all these decentralized computers across the whole world are, all they're doing is checking each other's work and checking the history of Bitcoin transactions. And for 
putting your computer to work, like the reason people would do that is that um, they have a chance of being rewarded for solving these cryptographic puzzles. And the reward for solving these cryptographic puzzles is you get paid in Bitcoin. And the rate at which you get paid in Bitcoin goes down over time. It gets halved, I can't remember, every four years, I can't remember. Um, the, the rate at which you get rewarded for solving these cryptographic puzzles, aka mining, goes down over time um, until every Bitcoin is mined. And then there's just, that's how much there are in the world. So it's naturally the 21 million. Yeah. And then, so naturally, will there be any loss of Bitcoin or um, like, because I mean, obviously, like you could lose it in a wallet. Like what are, I know he, that Robert brought up a safeguard, um, you know, that they have like multi keys um, for your Bitcoin so that you can um, not only it's like a bank essentially, but it's a decentralized one um, and you own it and you actually you don't have to trust that somebody. I think that that would be another good topic to get into is that when we get into when we go into the bank, you're trusting that they have your money and they don't actually have the amount of money that of the conglomerate of people that they have promised. They just have to have enough for to fulfill the order that, uh, you know, there's rules and specifications of how much they have to have, but they just have to have enough to essentially fulfill what they think your order is going to be, other conglomerate of people's orders are going to be. Um, and so they don't even have to have the full amount of money that they say that they have. Whereas in Bitcoin, it, you would truly own all of your money and you would truly have all of your money. And so if, if, everything, you know, say the stock market crashed or all of these companies that um, they that these banks are investing in start doing very, very poorly, such as in the Great Depression, uh, instead of your money being lost and gone, you go to the bank and you can't get it. Um, your, your money is still your money. And if you choose to invest it, you can. And so you don't have these banks that are making money off of you by investing your money. Uh, and I think that's a, a very large difference. If you want to invest your own Bitcoin, there will be other avenues in order to do that. But do you think there's any disadvantage into the fact that the banks, or do you think it is an advantage to that the banks will not be able to invest into um, the stock market utilizing your possessions? Um. No, because the, that borrowing and lending mechanism will naturally appear in different forms. Yes. Um, right now, it's uh, that the cancel on effect again. Banks are worth so much. Like, why? Why are banks the, some of the biggest corporations in the world? All they're doing is all they're supposed to be doing is storing our money and lending out enough of their profits, risking their profits by lending it out to other people and making money on interest on that. But they're waking, making way more than is possible if they were truly holding all of our reserves. And so th that's a, a big problem that also leads to like boom and bust cycles, another natural assumption that people have. Um, that, that there's two big ways to store your Bitcoin. And this gets confused because it's it's not a super simple concept. But this leads to a lot of the fear and confusion about cryptocurrencies in general is that there's two different ways to hold your Bitcoin. You can self-custody or cold store your Bitcoin, which means you put your Bitcoin in a private wallet, in a private um, wallet address, 
and you alone are responsible for its care. And if um, you forget how to access your Bitcoin, which is a seed phrase, which is um, a string of, or a combination of 12 words or a more cryptographic type passcode type thing, um, it, then uh, no one has access to it. So risk is higher for you losing, misplacing, forgetting uh, either a little a physical hard drive or um, it being cold stored virtually on a computer. Um, so that's you being your own bank necessarily. Um, but the other option is cus- holding your Bitcoin through a custodian. And that's a, through a centralized exchange like Coinbase or um, FTX or Kraken or like these other institutions where you give them US dollars and they hold Bitcoin in your name or tell you that they're doing that. And so now there's this huge problem. Um, there have been over the last couple of years of people thought that these centralized exchanges were holding people's Bitcoin for them as a promise and a one-to-one, like they could go to the bank and pull out all their Bitcoin if they wanted to. Um, but it turns out uh, a lot of, in order to yield farm and stake and do all these like fancy cryptocurrency type schemes and make all these false promises, these cryptocurrency exchanges had to take a bunch of risk with people's investments. And it turns out they didn't have the reserves. And, you know, so people went back and tried to claim their money again and oh, FTX is bankrupt. And so there's this huge fundamental principle divide in the, in the Bitcoin space where not your keys, not your coins. So if you're not cold storing it and you're not holding it yourself, it is subject to human error. It's subject to lying. It is, um, subject to you losing it. It's the same as you putting it in a bank and the bank not giving you your money when you show up. And that's but never... See, they, they they use that as like a propaganda to say, this is why you shouldn't trust Bitcoin. Is right. FTX, all this stuff happens, that everybody loses all this money. This is why you should not trust Bitcoin. Well, that is really, it should have, if, you, if people understood it at a higher level, it should actually tell them, this is why you should not trust banks. Because that is exactly how banks operate. Uh, it w- is like an FTX or a Coinbase. Yeah. Yep. They operate as this promissory note that they're carrying money that they don't actually have. Um, right. and, and that should be scary in and of itself for people. And, and we're just allowing them to risk our own money on ideas and concepts that are out there that we don't really have much power or say so in. Um, the, only, the only reason the the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government hasn't FTXed during every bust is that they have the monopoly on printing money. So if yeah. FTX could print its own U.S. dollars, it wouldn't have declared bankruptcy and it would it would you know pay all its uh, depositor funds back because it would be able to just print money out of thin air. And so I don't think that like banks in the U.S. government are any uh, safer, more secure, or more principled, or um, yeah, of course they have a cheat code. They can print all this money. Well, and imagine so if we took away that power from them. Well, and we and we pay the price for it. So that's the thing. Yeah. Like, it's, they still need the same amount of goods and services to be done and uh, produced. And, and and so if they do, if that doesn't happen, so say we have a recession. And these banks have invested all this money and they lose all this money. They might get bailed out by government printing a bunch of money for them. Um, And then that's what you see. But that money can't just be printed out of thin air without there being a price to it. And so the price is on the back end. Now we all have to work harder and 
do more things to make up for that concept and they have no punishment for it. And what, so what ends up happening is they, that's the inflation, you know, that they, um, is, that is natural for them to be able to do that. Um, and, and so they're really, they're just increasing the value of our goods and services over time, um, through utilizing the tool of banks, um, as a safeguard, um, for, uh, in case their system doesn't work. So it's that goes back to that thing that Robert said about they don't really have any skin in the game. They don't have any punishment if right. they don't do their job correctly. Right. Um, whereas if if this was done through Bitcoin, either you yourself, um, which I think that would be the best way to do it, is to completely allow everyone to have their own money, their own wallet, um, and keep their own Bitcoin. Um, and then be able to invest it if they choose and we don't need any centralized banking there is no more reason for to, to have banks anymore because we can just use this system as banks um and so i just don't understand is there any pushback against that like why why do people not go head over heels for that idea of you can be the investor if you want to or you can keep all of your money if you want to and you're not going to lose if, if the banks go and invest your money, you're not going to lose any of your money uh, or any of your value of your money. And that's the biggest difference yeah. is you can you, you, you get this promise that you won't lose any of your money now, but they just hide it you, because they, they deflate the value of it. And so as they deflate the value of it, you're really losing money, but you have the same number of dollars. And so you think that you have the same amount of money even though your money is worth less. Right. Uh, and, and so that's, that's a huge issue that I see that I never even knew existed until today. <laughs> and so like, it just, I mean, it blows my mind that we're not taught these things. Um, and, and it makes me excited to, to be able to dive into it with you um, and learn more about it. Um, but it, it really just blew my mind to think about that today uh it was really shocking uh, when you when you put it all together and you understand that that the government is stealing and cheating you out of your work and effort and goods and services that you bring to the table uh, and and we shouldn't sit idly by and just kind of allow that to happen uh, and we have somebody out there that we don't know his name I mean, we know his you know sure name but we don't know who he actually is but somebody out there gave us an avenue to get out of this uh you know cheating and stealing process that's happening and, and i think it'd be very wise for us to to take it or at least take a look at it yeah uh, on a fundamental level let's say you have if your money is your private property right ostensibly like if you uh have a hundred thousand dollars to your name, whether it's in a vault or whatever, let's say it's in a vault, in a safe in your own house, hundred thousand dollars. That's all you have to your name. If somebody came in and took two or three thousand or five thousand dollars every single year, that would be theft, right? Yeah. And so, any action, any coordinated action that makes your property worth less without, you know, fault of your own is by nature, it's theft. And so we've normalized that so much to the point where, I don't know, we just accept it as true. And we're like, well, I hope we get a cost of living raise. And people, <laughs> uh, people have to do so much financial, so much of the financial planning I used to do, uh, a huge component of it was cost of living, which 
we just take for granted cost of living shouldn't be a, a cost of living increases shouldn't be a thing yeah. or the assumption that it's an inc- just flat out it's going to increase over time so much of people's savings and retirement planning and complicated calculations are to make sure that you can buy the same that you can buy a loaf of bread when you're 70 how many dollars will it take to buy a loaf of bread when you're 70 and all these future projections based on past inflationary data and why is it it's not all a waste of human potential because this shouldn't exist um, we, we may have mentioned this on a previous podcast but if human productivity human efficiency technology all these are things are increasing the cost to produce and serve these goods should go down over time so hmm. if anything is natural it's de- deflationary and Bitcoin is deflationary because there's a hard cap. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. There are probably, I don't know, a million or two or more Bitcoin. They're already permanently lost in wallets that'll never be accessed or sent to debt addresses. Um, So deflationary money is natural over time. And so many people are taking these risks that they shouldn't have to take just to preserve their private property. Yeah, It's like, imagine if you... Imagine if you had to keep building or scooting your house closer and closer to the ocean, increasing the risk of hurricane just to preserve its value. If you want your house to stay worth $500,000, you got to keep pushing it on these logs, uh, rolling towards the ocean. So that's what they're doing with their money is they're having to put in more and more risky financial assets just to preserve the balance just to keep making that two, three, four percent. And the assets keep having to get riskier and riskier. So people are having to take bigger and bigger gambles with their money just to hang on to what's already theirs. They're not even like speculatively investing. People are having to be in riskier risk allocations closer to retirement just to compensate for cost of living. Um, And that's all because of the central bank because the supply of money keeps going up over over and over time. 80% of the, the dollars in existence have been printed since what early 2020? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, and 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 that that's just incredibly terrifying to think about. Um it if you take to, to make it in simple the simplest terms, if like you we'll go back to the bread example. If it takes um say it takes 10 people to make a um, hundred loaves of bread a day. And then we've gotten more efficient. That system has gotten more efficient. And now it takes three people to make a hundred loaves a day. Why is the bread getting more expensive? What, how does that, like, how does in anybody's mind, how does that make sense? Like I can understand like, as with population increase, maybe there's uh, the possibility of a slight inflation. Um, but, but even then our efficiency is going up at a rate that's higher than the the rate of increase of uh, need. Uh, We know that because we don't live in the same poverty we used to. Um, And, and so it just doesn't, it's like they're giving us just a little bit, a tiny bit so that we keep accepting all of these lies and and stuff that that they tell us they're letting us inch, you know, just a little bit while they get to live lavishly when really I I believe we could all live pretty well off if we were coordinated together. And it's hard to coordinate together when you all, when you always have a knife at somebody else's throat. And and right now you have countries that all have their knives at, at the other person's throat. Um, and not that they're going to do anything in like a major world war system, but like just the fact that they can't 
cohesively work together because we're not utilizing the same rules, uh, it it causes for an unfair system, and then it in, ends up causing for a less efficient system. And in a less efficient system, we have less uh, progression. progression. Um, and we have a lot of progression naturally just from um, being able to build off our own ideas. But imagine how much better this world would be if we were able to progress at the rate that we're supposed to be able to progress at. Uh, I mean, I see these ideas that are being propagated in Saudi Arabia uh, the, of these megalithic structures, these beautiful buildings, these beautiful concepts, uh, that they have like islands that are made to look like the world map that they built, uh, like man-made islands that they built to look like the world map, this idea of the line concept. Um, and it's because they have a stable resource of oil. Um, and, and so that's, kind of their their money system um and and so i think if everyone had that uh, concept we would see that more often throughout the world as well yeah I, and i think there's huge corruption problems with how they're getting their money and how they're getting their labor and so i, I understand like your point uh, building big long-term yeah. impre impressive structures for multi-generational reasons um and, and yeah, that would be possible if people didn't have such a high time preference. If they, if they had more faith that their money would last them, last them longer, wouldn't get naturally eroded. We'd be able to invest in these different types of projects or have real um, multi-generational wealth planning. Or, um, or life could get easier. You'd have, we'd have a choice either. We could, well, and I think it can yeah. definitely be both. Uh, instead of still working 40 hours a week and building con building things that don't withstand time, we would build things that do withstand time and we should be we would be working less time um, and, and still getting to accomplish these amazing yeah. things. I think a lot of that too, like the the materials that we work with, um, all kind of coincide. Uh, and this is all Robert's idea, so I'm not taking credit for it, but uh, they all kind of coincide with the this um, distrust in money. And uh, the, the more distrust that exists with money, uh, the more short-term thinking that you have. And that that in and of itself is, allow is not allowing for us to make our lives either easier or far more beautiful. Um, and that should be upsetting for people. What, what are we doing if we're not making our lives either easier or far more beautiful? Like, what is it? What are we aiming at? Um, instead, it's like we're aiming for to stay stagnant. Um, and, and that's not what I want. I want to live in a beautiful world. Um, or I want to live, I want to be able to work less and have more time to freely do what I want to do. Um, but I'm not getting either one of those things, even though we're getting much better at what we do um, as humanity. So, uh, yeah. Cent central banking and fiat currencies are this giant brick under the gas pedal of progress. Uh, <laughs> literally and we're, we, we're fighting way too hard for the little bits of progress we're experiencing. Yeah. Like, uh, actually, actually fighting, uh, probably 10 times harder than we need to for, it's crazy because you think about it, the Egyptians built buildings that still stand today. Uh, are any of our buildings going to stand in 
4,000 years. No, yeah. I, and, and that might not be the metric of human progress and happiness is how long are the, the buildings stick around. But it, I mean, it, but in a more depressing, shorter time span example, like the, the quality, just in general, the quality of housing that has been built over time has gone down. How it, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, talking about like bread should become cheaper over time. The things, the things, that, the technologies that have been around longer that are more basic and more fundamental to our needs are the products that are that it makes the most sense for them to decrease in cost over time, right? If you're going to argue anything should maybe cost more and more over time, it's an iPhone, it's a computer, it's it's a cutting edge technological things. But does it make any sense that the cost to build a house should go up over time? Up if, to if an it, irrational point. Real estate values aside, like cost of building materials, labor and construction, like quality has gone down that the, the monopoly house that got built in the neighborhood next door to me is only going to be around for 50, 60 years before the foundation crumbles and they have to knock it down and build another one. And the, um, the you know, all these beautiful buildings in Florence, Italy have been around for over a thousand years. Uh, and the technology that we have now and the, the quality of building materials that we have now is way, way higher than it was back then. But it costs like more per labor hour now, way more to build these houses. And it's less affordable for people than it was even back then. And so my point is like these basic staples of living, you know, shelter, food, energy, all these things should be going down because of increases in efficiency, not up. And there's um and there's a certain scarcity with certain types of energy or building supplies and things like that. But before scarcity becomes a problem, the free market solves that by pivoting to a new or different solution or a more efficient solution. And, and, and so we've got it flipped. It's like TVs. I always go back to this because it's an amazing example that TVs have gone way down over time and up in quality and, and yeah. affordability. Uh, but housing and food has gotten more expensive somehow. It's it it's, and uh, people are upset about that. I mean, like the I think people the are upset, but they don't know what to do about it. I, yeah, I think they well, don't. And, and the reason fiat currencies have been able to stick around for so long is because there hasn't. I think this is probably the core, the biggest core reason. There hasn't been a viable alternative until until Bitcoin. People walked around and be like, "Yeah, the, the central banking's fucked up, and um, I'm losing money every year." But what's the alternative? I'm not going to go back to carrying around gold bars. That's highly, highly impractical. I would rather play this game than carry around gold bars. And I'm not going to adopt some other country's fiat currency because they have, well, the same problem exists. So what's the alternative? I guess I'm just going to play along. And so people have like had it beaten into their heads that there's this game might be rigged, but it's very complicated and there's no alternative. Uh, but they haven't realized that in the last 10 years, a real alternative has come up. You can still call the system complicated. That's fine. It's not as complicated as people make it seem um, artificially to preserve their power. But now there is a real alternative. You've and never had to think about what makes a good money because there's. it doesn't matter because there's never been a good alternative to the money that exists. So who cares what makes a good money? Yeah, it, I don't, and you pointed it out perfectly with this analogy. It was that a, a piece of gold, the same weight of gold in 1920 to buy a nice fitted suit is exactly how much it would cost today. And the same amount of weight of gold 
would be equal to buying that suit. It would have bought the suit then, it would buy the suit today. Whereas if you had that, say it was $20, if you had $20 to buy that suit, you would then need $200. It was probably only $2 to buy that suit, but you now need $200 to buy that exact same suit. And so the gold has stayed stable while the money has been incredibly devalued. So we need to get back to something that exists like gold. I don't think that the gold would be the worst. I'd rather carry around a gold bar that was going to keep the same value than getting my money stolen every day. But instead, we have been gifted this beautiful thing of Bitcoin, which is like a internet gold, or it's not like a, a... or what would you call that? A technological gold. Um, and and it, it it's so perfect in its structure that I, I just wish people would, they have to first, I think, understand that they're getting stolen from. Um, and, and then they can take a look at the complexities that they think are, are way more complex than what they really are of Bitcoin. Um, but the more research that you do, it just seems more and more uh, stable, but also more and more um, beneficial uh, to, to the success of everyday people, each one of us. I and mean, yeah, I still think there will be people that take advantage of the system and become very powerful um, and better, you know, you know, better than or higher power, higher um, places in the hierarchy, but I think that it would happen at a lower rate than uh, if if we just stick to what we have now in, in the um, cash system. Uh, I don't know that for a fact, but that's my that's another fear that I have. So um, I'll introduce that question to you. Um, do you think that because it's a finite amount that at some point someone will collect it all and then we'll be left with what's at the bottom? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, it, the idea of a finite amount and, oh my God, somebody dies with a million Bitcoins in their wallet. Uh, that Oh my God, we just lost one twenty-one of the go- global financial supply. Like, uh, no, that just means whatever's left over is worth more. And you yeah. can infinitely subdivide Bitcoins. Right now they're divisible into $100,000 subdivisions called Satoshis. And and uh, 100 years from now, one person having one Bitcoin will be insane like and individual satoshis will be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and like there will be a subunit below that if we need to like we can always subdivide a fixed monetary supply and somebody wouldn't somebody can't collect all the bitcoin now just like somebody can't collect all the gold in the world now or the u.s dollars it'd be such an advantage to 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 if you wanted to save for your family in the future um, you know, this money is going to get more valuable over time. Uh, I think it might disincentivize, um, it'll disincentivize improper spending habits, which I think it'd be a really good thing. I think people yeah. will think more properly about where their money is going to go. Um, and, and it'll disincentivize people spending, uh, like whimsy, spending their money just on on a whim um, for these little small dopamine hits of, of yeah. you know these little bits of excitement here yeah. and there. Imagine, 
imagine if you got your pride and your dopamine and your um, sense of satisfaction from watching your account value grow instead of you're like, oh, fuck it, I'm losing 5% in this stupid bank account every year and paying fees on this bank account and having to go to an ATM to get my own money and all this shit. I'm going to try to find happiness in short-term material possessions instead. Yeah, this totally yeah, realigns where we get I'll our- go bar. I'll, I'll go, go to the bar. I'll go to the bar, yeah. If you think your money is you know, getting devalued over time, then what is your incentive to not go spend all of it right now? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and instead- of of spending it properly or wisely you're you're going to throw it away at things that that don't really matter because you don't have enough time to think about the the um the concept of of what what makes a good purchase and um where should my money go it, it, it will just raise awareness of how people should spend their money how people should trade wisely um so that we can all thrive uh, whereas the money now it's like, and you can see it, people just spend, you know, their money on this or that, um, that doesn't really have any value for their life because I don't think, I think, you know, uh, subconsciously they kind of understand that, you know, the, my money is not going to be worth anything or it's going to be worth less and less each year. I mean, you're, yeah. they watch it happen. Um, and, and instead if they're worth it, money was as Bitcoin started to, uh, certain Bitcoin started to evaporate, it became worth more and more and more. Some, you could have the choice to hold on to it and grow some wealth yeah. for yourself you, you or, see. or spend it on something that will also grow in value, um, and, and become better, uh, for all of us and it's less waste, less product waste, uh, a lot, all, all great things. You set completely different goals for yourself based on what you think is realistic or attainable. If uh, if if houses started at three million dollars, you would never start saving for a house. Like if a hundred, a few hundred dollars a month towards a down payment to a house would seem like you know drops in the bucket, and it would seem worthless until you would say it's not worth saving for that long term financial stability or that long term asset. I'm just going to spend it short term. Um, but if you knew that that the few hundred dollars a month that you we're going to uh, save over time grows in value instead of losing value over time. And the price of housing comes down over the years because there aren't interferences in the free market, the real estate free market, and a true um, uh, decentralized financial system is decreasing the cost of production and labor and increasing automation, all these things that make the house more valuable. Like instead of uh, those lines never intersecting, they intersect a whole lot faster. And so people totally realign what is realistic for themselves and where they put their money. And, and it's a self-reinforcing thing. As you see your account values go up, you feel more empowered. And um, as the cost for these basic goods comes down over time, because that's the natural move, um, you feel closer to your, your, your goals moving closer to you and you're moving closer to your goal. Um, it's just totally foreign to how we look at things now. And there's a, a set of disclaimers about Bitcoin and changing your money that we probably should have mentioned up top, but for people that don't, a lot of people that are listening to this, if anybody ever does at all, um, <laughs> it is like, you're more curious about money than probably the average person. Um, but even if you do want to opt out of the Bitcoin financial system of the future, just like you want to opt out of this current one, cause you don't enjoy it. Uh, the good news is you don't have to know a whole lot like about 
the financial system in order to function within it. Um, just like you don't know how a whole lot of stuff works now and you, you make and spend dollars every single day, the same is going to be true for Bitcoin. And a few things I was scared of when I first heard about, you know, Bitcoin adoption and self-custody is that, oh my God, if I fuck up or if I have an aneurysm, can't remember, like I lose all my money, there's no um, decentralized safety. But now they have- There's no they one to access code. to Right. So my disclaimer is that there are different ways to store your Bitcoin where it's not on a centralized exchange, but trusted parties can still get to it. And that's just now. That's just 10 years or 12 or whatever years into Bitcoin. There are a limited number of market solutions, but that will increase over time as Bitcoin adoptability increases. So you don't need to know a ton about the financial system. The financial system will be much simpler because there won't be all this uh, smoke and mirrors, fractional reserve banking, uh, U.S. Treasury Department, um, expansionary monetary theory, like all those terms will go away. They will be terms of the past um, because there will just be a hard money that's collectively decided is money. Um, and it will be so much simpler. Um, so your Bitcoin will be as secure or insecure as you choose instead of your U.S. dollars being insecure for everybody. Um, but also it, if you want to be super safe with some of your Bitcoin and self-custody it by putting it on a flash drive in a safe in your house, you can put some of your wealth there. And then you can put some of it on a centralized exchange because it's easier to transact there. So you're taking risk that you know somebody else is holding your money and that it could go away, but you're trading that for convenience. It's like uh, gold in the safe and US dollars out to buy coffee. And there's going to be every single not- level of that. Just like there is money now, artificially inflated. Yeah, I mean, like yeah. even if you use the the coin, Coinbase or whatever, it, it it's not as safe and it's not as yours and it's not as real um, in all actuality. But um, you at least are not losing value over time, and and that in itself should be enough reason for everyone to want to make the switch. Anyways, it's just that we should be gaining value over time. We, if we're getting more efficient, that is the thing that I think should be nailed in to over and over and over and over and over again, is that if we are working harder and we are working more efficiently and we are getting better at things, then the overall value of things should cost less. It, that is just a, a natural rule. And instead we have the opposite happening, which means there's a flaw in the system. And if there's a flaw in the system, then we need a system that doesn't have a flaw that doesn't contain those flaws. And Bitcoin seems to solve those issues. Uh, I mean, very simply. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and we didn't, and we haven't gotten into um, the fundamentals of time, or I'm sorry, the fundamentals of money, um, which I don't know. It might get into a, a separate podcast. It's something I want to have a list of anyway, I think, so we can address each point and give it its time. Yeah. Um, but I, I really struggle to find a, an argument for the status quo and against Bitcoin at this point. Yeah. Uh, I a, think it's okay. a, ask the average person, what would you want from your money? Um, it, it, do you want it to be more complicated or less complicated? People would say less. I'm like, do you want it to be worth more or less over time? More. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and they think that they don't have the option that like, that's the, the and I, I mean, and, they, were right, and they, they had a really good argument for being right up until about 10 years ago, even if you were a gold bug and all you had gold, um, 
you're like, you thought that's the alternative to hold all my wealth and gold. Like that was illegal at a certain point to privately hold a certain amount of gold. Um, and it's just not, it's just not practical. Um, Bitcoin has every advantage that gold does plus some. Uh, the gold was the, the best substitute for Bitcoin um, until Bitcoin came around. Gold has this big problem of the physicality of it. Gold is yeah. heavy. Gold takes up a lot of room. Gold is hard to verify yeah. uh, because you got to make sure there's not a bunch of copper or some inferior metal on the inside. We can go into yeah. coin, coinage and um, officially stamped currencies that were made out of precious metals in the past. Um, but another huge problem is that it's seizable. Yeah. Every, if you carry your gold with you in a fucking wagon or a car or a briefcase or whatever it is, yeah, somebody else it. can take it from you. And it's a, just a bearer asset. Whoever's holding the briefcase full of gold has the gold. So somebody can punch you and take it, but that's not true with Bitcoin. Yeah. Can, and I think my favorite, one of my favorite phrases from Robert Breedlove is like with Bitcoin, you can cross a border with a billion dollars in your brain and there's yeah. nothing anybody can do about it. Yeah. I think that's a fear that some people have is, is can someone hack into your Bitcoin and steal all your money? Um, and so I think that that, that is something that needs to be addressed uh, and made sure that there's a solution for that. Um, but outside of that, I, I don't see any reason to have, there's no, but that can still happen with a bank and now uh, and, and yeah, the bank much you more easily. Yeah, much more easily. Um, and, and so I think um, what, what we need to do is first, start with the the basics of which money is better and, and weigh them out, you know, fiat currency versus Bitcoin. And then, and I think that we've done, started to do that here. Um, and, and then allow yourself to make the decision. Like you said, of those two prominent questions, do you, do you want your value to go up or down? Um, but then, then build the system around that that gives you the safeguards that you want. Um, but if the money is bad to begin with, if the, if it's a, if the currency is bad to begin with, then adding these safeguards is not a reason to keep the money. It's instead, uh, you know, just it's, it's, um, I don't even know how to say it. It's just the, it gives you a reason to trust it more, but it's not, it can be applied to both situations. So you can't say hey, I'm going to stick with fiat currency because this can happen in Bitcoin if you can create the exact same safeguard for Bitcoin. Um, we just need to start developing those. And then that's the one step at a time approach. Um, and then when you have the correct amount of safeguards, uh, I think the the full adoption becomes necessary. Yeah. Well, that's what's nice about Bitcoin adoption too for the people that are scared or unfamiliar is uh, you get to do it incrementally. You don't need to decide like, all right, I don't have any US dollars anymore. I'm going all Bitcoin, you know, all chips on black. Um, no, you can, you dip your toe in the water and experiment a little bit. I've already learned lessons from holding cryptocurrencies for the last two years and changed a lot of what I thought and where I place my faith um, in cryptocurrencies over the last few years from self-education. And uh, uh, early adoption has its advantages because you can take advantage of a lot of the upside that while people don't even know what cryptocurrency is, so obviously that's the huge advantage of Bitcoin adopters. Um, but the downside is there's a lot of risk because there's a lot of self-education involved. 
Um, there are less safety nets. There's more volatility. Um, you're more subject to schemers and hackers. Um, but a lot of this stuff will get figure out, figured out over time. There will be less upside to be realized as more time passes, um, but there will be the market will be smarter. You know, we've learned a lot from the FTX collapse and the, the Luna collapse and um, these different uh, Mount Gox years and years ago, these different crypto scams. Um, and it will be harder and harder to, to scam people over time. And people will start to separate Bitcoin from other cryptocurrencies more. Um, but yeah, uh, maybe if you wait a hundred years to adopt this thing, a lot of the upside will be accounted for already. Yeah. Uh, I still think it'll be endlessly, uh, there's endless upside because of the sure fact that some of it will disappear. Yeah. Uh, some of it will disappear over time. And so that yours will be valued more over time, um, just naturally, uh, as long as people agree to adopt it, uh, holistically, uh, or not necessarily holistically, but, um, have, uh, a large adoption uh, pool. And right now there's a large enough adoption pool, but it, I think it should continually increase. And as it does continually increase, people will start to have more trust and faith in it. And they will create these safe, safeguards because people want to protect their money. Um, but it's like the very first version of the iPhone. Like if you compare that to the iPhone today, like the extremely different devices, but uh, that's what we're in. We're in version one. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin won't change in itself, but we, the system that exists around it will continually get better and continually update and the safeguards will continually improve. Uh, and I think that overall, um, because it starts at a better basis, that it's just a better choice. Uh, and so that's kind of where I thought about it. And uh, I think next time we'll get into uh, more thoughts about um, just the comparison factor between um, money and Bitcoin uh, and pros and cons, um, and then also uh, get into um, what you were saying uh, about the the possible trajectory of, of Bitcoin in itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, it's a good time to wrap up on uh, the fundamentals of money that I wanted to go over next time in a more organized way um, are, are divisibility, durability, portability, recognizability and scarcity. And so what it comes down for me, what it comes down to for me in evaluating different currencies is like, are those good characteristics by which to measure, measure money? Um, and if they are, well, let's make a pros and cons list or a checkbox list of US dollar, gold, and Bitcoin. Who checks what boxes? And you know, if it's a tie, we'll go from there. But let's like see who checks what boxes first. And uh, if uh, spoiler alert, uh, if uh, if Bitcoin checks all these boxes and the other two don't, then it's on the burden of proofs on you to make an argument for why we shouldn't substitute this um, 100% for better money. Yeah, so um, that's where we'll start next time uh, is we'll, we'll go through each one of those pros and cons uh, and, and we'll break it down one at a time uh, and then kind of let you decide what what you think about uh, fiat currency versus Bitcoin, and and which one you think uh, really truly has more value to us as humanity, um, and and as a money, uh, as an agreeable um, tradable asset. Um, so I I think that's a good place to leave it. Um, yeah. But I'm excited to to get into that next time. Yeah. 
I'm really optimistic because I think the biggest barrier to Bitcoin adoption is just knowledge. I think if people learn more, it like it's a problem that solves itself. Um, there's, there's not a there's not intellectuals out there with really good arguments against Bitcoin, at least to my knowledge. Um, all the biggest, uh, smartest people out there against Bitcoin um, have pretty obvious um, incentives <laughs> to maintain the status quo or uh, conflicts of interest. Um, that are right there on the surface. And what's great about Bitcoin is like, uh, you might have a personal bias that like you want your own value of Bitcoin to go up, but it doesn't really go beyond that. Nobody's got control levers on Bitcoin or they don't own Bitcoin Incorporated where they get to make billions and billions of dollars uh, if they propagandize people into adopting Bitcoin. So um, yeah, man, I'm excited for the future and um, let's um, put a a nice bow at least on this section of um, the podcast and the money and financial section of this podcast because there's all kinds of other things to get into um but i think we'll call it here and yeah join you uh, guys for part four and go over some of the fundamentals next time one thousand percent cool take care everybody